0: Uh, We're going to do, it's 6.30, so I'm going to, it's 6.31, so I'm going to start. We're going to do four weeks in the Song of Solomon. Uh, This is the first time I've ever taught this book, even though I love the Old Testament. And um, I I think I only know of, I don't think Schrader's ever even taught this book. Uh, I think Mark Driscoll taught it once. And I know Justin Anderson taught it once when we were Praxis Church. Uh, and so, anyway, I will tell you that a lot of a lot of what is tonight a lot of what tonight is is going to be introductory material so if you came tonight for all the sex you 're going to be really disappointed so and it is a racy book i mean it, it, when you read this closely <laughs> even if you don't read it closely if if um if you're trying to explain away the metaphors you're you're going to really have to reach to be able to do that. The metaphors are saying exactly what they what you think they are saying, okay? And uh, so that'll be fun. Uh, how many of you were here for the Ecclesiastes? I think a number of you were, yeah. So this is kind of interesting to me because um, I've often been accused of being a clone of Tom Schrader in teaching style, obviously not physically. Um, anyway... Uh, you'll see tonight, if you were here for Ecclesiastes, that uh, we're not. When I was at Paradise Alley Community Church, we had a youth um, pastor one time, Kerry Slater, good, still a good friend of mine, funny guy. We had one of those uh, letter signs out in the front of the church where you could ch- you know open the case and change the letters. And I drove up one Tuesday morning, and on Monday, he had gotten in there and changed the sign to say, Come hear Tom Schrader secondhand every Sunday morning. <laughs> um, but I will tell you this: in, in my opinion, just listening to Tom, I've listened to Tom for almost 30 years now. Uh, Tom is an excellent storyteller. He has a memory like an elephant, which I still don't know what that means, but apparently it's a good memory. And um, he uh, he works very hard at what he does, and um, he really knows how to connect. With people. Uh, I love to show my homework almost to a fault and Tom doesn't do that. Tom works just as hard, he studies just as hard as anybody I've ever known. He just doesn't really show that stuff. I like to show that stuff. I'm fascinated by the backstories and the backgrounds and all of that stuff. So um, even though I can't wait to get into the text of Song of Solomon, uh, and we'll get to the first seven verses tonight, but really the next three weeks after this is when we'll really be handling the majority of the book. I, I love all the background stuff to understand the context and why things are written and what, what the purpose is and all that. So what's, that's what we're going to do uh, a lot of tonight. Um, somebody once asked, uh, as I said I was going to do this, why the Song of Solomon? In the words of a famous philosopher, why not? There's my explanation. It's in the Bible. And it has, it, this book has survived many attacks over the years as to its canonicity. In other words, whether or not it really belongs in the Bible. Um, especially in the ancient times, Song of Solomon was often challenged by Jewish scholars and rabbis as to whether or not it belonged in the canon, in, in the Bible. Uh, the, really, the debate was pretty much put to rest around 90 AD, when the famous Rabbi Akiva at the Council of Jamnia. Now, if I were ever to go to a conference or a council, I'd want to go to one called Jamnia. Doesn't that sound like a lot of fun? Even in 90 AD. But at the Council of Jamnia, he argued, uh, sort of in a finalistic way of, for its inclusion in the Hebrew canon. And Here's what he wrote, or here's what he said, but it was recorded. God's charge to Adam and Eve in the Garden, of Genes- in, in, the Garden in Genesis uh, 1 and 2 was never to be ashamed or awkward about their sexuality but to be ennobled by it. To be ennobled by it. And if you've read um, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, and especially 24 and 25, you know that that's true. Um, And and ennobled means uh, to lend great dignity to. Uh, Paul David Tripp goes so far as to say that um, making love between a a husband and wife is actually, in part, at least an act of worship. Okay, God created this. The problem is not sex or sexuality, it's how sin has corrupted our sexuality. That's the problem. So, what is the purpose or theme or point of the book? Uh, There really are three different levels or ways to understand the book. Number one is it's... uh, uh, it's the beauty of romantic, erotic love in the midst of a committed relationship—a relationship which God authored. If you've ever heard of Chuck Swindoll, this is the this is the level or the way that he embraces. This is how he uh, oh he's taught this book before too. Yes, so Chuck Chuck has done that, uh, but he embraces this. Uh, second way is to understand it solely as a metaphor an extended metaphor or an allegory about the love that God has for his people Israel and many rabbis believe that's the proper interpretation of it and then the third way to understand it is a pre-messianic illustration of Christ and his bride the church so what we're reading about is really the relationship between Christ and the church I, I I think it's certainly the first one. We'll discuss all three to some extent, but I really believe it's the first one. I'm with Swindall on this one. Uh, you can interpret this book literally, take it at face value. They're romantic. It's a collection of romantic poems that are meant to hung, uh, hang together and tell a story. Uh, of course, uh, poetry. When we read poetry, if, you, if you're into poetry, you have to use rhetorical techniques and devices such as metaphor and simile and irony and antithesis, uh, which since this is ancient poetry, uh, ancient and again even narrower, ancient Hebrew poetry, this requires a lot of study and a lot of work because it's written more than 3,000 years ago in a different culture and context. So ancient Eastern cultures valued things Far different than the way we do, and symbolize things differently than we do. So, um, there there is a requirement to study it, even though it's poetry. Uh, If you do if you do interpret it as allegory or metaphor, um, it's that the Song of Solomon is a story that illustrates a different reality, such as God's love for His people or Christ and the Church. Um, By the way, uh, if you don't believe that metaphor allegory is a is an appropriate way to interpret at least some parts of the Bible. Here's a story about a guy named Origen of Alexandria. Has anybody ever heard of him? He was one of the early church fathers in the uh, late second century and early third surgery. Anybody heard of Origen? No? Okay. Um, wonderful church father, lots of writings, but he had this weird incident in his life Uh, For a long time, he believed only, only, only in absolute literal translation of every part of God's word, literal translation. And then he was thoroughly convicted by Jesus's teaching in Matthew 530 that says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Origen determined that he had a problem with lust, so he had himself emasculated. It's a true story. And it was after that event that he decided that maybe allegory and metaphor would be okay to interpret the Bible that way. It, 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 it sounds like a story, but it's, it's true. It's true. Um, uh, for instance, here you go. Is God really an eagle and we're flying on his wings? Is that really what's happening? That the, that the universe is this big eagle and we're just kind of hanging out? Know, no. Okay. And then the third way, another way is, is that you, you interpret it didactically. It's moral teaching on love and marriage. And certainly this is true, at least in part. So it's romantic poems, but it can also be, again, moral teaching about romantic love uh, and marriage. And again, uh, Chuck Swindoll would take that as, as true. And I'm, I'm all in for the uh, poetry and romantic love and, and those interpretations. So, what about authorship dates and the players in the Song of Solomon? First, what is Song of Solomon? It's a, it's a sequential collection of love poems and dialogues, probably not all written at exactly the same time, um, but pretty close together, and it's meant to be hung together to tell a story. So, it was at some point assembled into one document. Uh, some of it is dialogical, and some of it is soliloquies, So you'll see some parts that just seem to be soliloquies, and then other parts where there's back and forth between uh, the players, but they all fit together. The author is Solomon. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and and that's referencing the author. Uh, Song of Songs is an ancient Hebrew literary device that simply screams. The author who wrote this wrote thousands and thousands of songs, we know from 1 Kings 4.32, that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs along with 3,000 um, um, uh, proverbs. And uh, what, what this is saying, the song of songs, is that this is the single best one ever written of the 1,005 or of however many that he wrote. And it is of Solomon. Uh, the scholar John Balcon It claims that there is no good reason that Solomon is not the author, although the authorship has been attacked many, many times and and continues to be today. Solomon reigned from 971 to 930 B.C., and I'll talk more about who he is later. Um, Some of the rabbinic traditions, not the majority opinion, but some of them assign the authorship to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, in the 6th or 7th century B.C., which essentially makes no sense, there, there's, there, there's nothing that hints at Hezekiah in the text anywhere, it's just a theory that they came up with and it kind of gained some steam, and that happens uh, a lot in academia and scholarship, that you don't necessarily have to have evidence for a theory, for a theory to, to get legs and, and, and become popular. So, But the vast majority of rabbinic and Talmudic tradition has Solomon as the author, and that leads us to the date. Um, it was likely assembled around 965 B.C., so maybe six years into Solomon's reign. Um, uh, and, and even a casual reading of the song indicates Solomon's contemporaneous reign with the authorship of the book. As, as you read it, you kind of can see, if you know anything about the history of Israel, the history of Solomon as the king, it, it feels like it's right that it was written early in his um, reign. Uh, The more modern and the more liberal the commentator is, however, the further and further away they try to place the date from that date of 965. We have some contemporary non-Jewish authors, um, um, scholars now, uh, arguing for a post-exilic dating of maybe 300 BC for the writing. Again, makes no sense, Um, and, and there's clear arguments for why it should be dated around 965. For instance, in chapter 6 verse 4, there's a reference to the city of Tizra. Tizra was uh, a famous city from 1100 to 850 BC and was the capital of Samaria, which eventually became the northern kingdom. But after 850 BC, Tizra was 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 a nothing city. It was it was absolutely inconsequential. And so to be referencing Tizra in a writing around 300 B.C. makes really little, very little sense. Um, I, I want to stop here, and I just want to talk about something about, about interpretations. And this, this may not have anything to do with Song of Solomon. Some of you may be really bored with this, but I think it's important for you to be aware of this. And I'll find out from Jackie later whether or not I should have done this, because I didn't run it by her. But I'm going to do it anyway. This is... Um, This is uh, uh, what I would say, this will just kind of help you maybe get inside of of some minds of the way contemporary scholarship works. Um, Contemporary scholars, the more liberal ones, many of them who identify even as Christians, uh, what they want to do is they want to be able to interpret scripture any way they see fit. And so they know that they can't just go to the text and start doing that, 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 that if they have to actually start, to start by attacking the foundations of the text. And the two biggest foundations, the two cornerstones of, the tec- of a text, is always going to be the date of the writing and the authorship. And they go after the date of the writing first. If they can get the date of the writing later than when it was actually written, then it's very easy to argue that the supposed author of the text didn't write it because the date would be late, too late for that person to write it. And then, Katie bar the door, any kind of theory is open as to, as to who wrote it and why they wrote it and what it, what it means, okay? So that's the first thing that they go after. And so let me give you some examples of what we've been dealing with just in the last 50 years with contemporary authorship, Okay? Uh, there's one supposed very solid New Testament scholar who says that Paul, if he wrote any of the letters in the New Testament, he wrote Galatians and that's it. All the other letters were written by somebody else posing as Paul in later centuries, okay? And, and th- by the way, if you think that's goofy, this, y- y- if, depending on the circles you run in, this theory has all kinds of legs and people believe it. I, I talk to people fairly regularly who can't believe that I am such a Neanderthal that I believe that Paul actually was the author of those 13 books in the New Testament that have his name on it. That I, I'm, just, I'm just not with the, the, the program. And their proof, proof is mostly writing style, that the writing style in these letters changes and it's different so it can't possibly be the same author. Let me ask you something. Do you have the same style of writing now as you did 10 years ago? Absolutely not. And and Paul wrote these over a number of years. So anyway, it's goofy, but people buy it. And the reason people buy it is because they want to be able to interpret the Bible their own way. That's the primary reason. Here's another one. Did you know that there are four authors of the book of Genesis? And that, that those authors then wove the book together. We don't know who they are. We don't know who these authors are. But it's certainly not Moses. And the, and the book of Genesis was actually not uh, recorded and written down until during the exile, the Babylonian exile. So almost a thousand years after the exodus actually happened was when it was finally written. Now, obviously, there was an oral tradition, but what they're talking about is nobody really even put together the story of, of uh, Genesis until a thousand years after Moses supposedly wrote it, okay? Again, um, no real proof for it. They just say, well, it just seems like a plausible explanation. Well, then why not just take it at face value and interpret it the way they, people have interpreted it for 4,000 years, 3,000 years, Okay. Uh, here's another one. None of the Gospels were written by their namesake. All were written in the second or third century. None of them were written in the first century. None of them written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Okay. Um, here's one of my favorites. I'm sure there are a couple of people in here who have heard of this. In the 80s and 90s, there was a group of 50 uh, New Testament, quote, scholars, led by a guy named uh, Robert Funk, And I think Shelby Spong was a part of this. And uh, they formed something called the Jesus Seminar. Who's heard of that? Yeah, yeah, okay. That's good. So they met over the course of many, many years because they're really smart and they have great insights that nobody else has. And they took the Gospels and they analyzed the Gospels. And you know how some of you have a red letter edition of the Bible where all the words of Jesus are in red? Okay, so what they were looking at are all the words that Jesus supposedly spoke, all the red letters, okay, red words, and they debated and argued over whether or not Jesus really said those things, and over the course of time, they voted, and how did they, anybody know, remember how they voted? They voted with marbles. <laughs> I'm not kidding, okay, this just sounds like it's made up, but it's it's not, okay, And so they would take a a passage, uh, not even a passage, they would take a verse or a clause from a verse that supposedly Jesus read, or or, Jesus said, and they had four marbles. And if they put a red marble in the palm of their hand, they believe that absolutely Jesus said that. If they put a pink marble in their hand, they believe that Jesus might have said it, but we can't really be sure. If they put a gray marble in their hand, they said, Jesus probably did not say that, even if it kind of sounds like him. He probably didn't say it. And then if they put a black marble in their hand, that that was a vote that said, Jesus most certainly did not say this. And then they would vote on the clause or the verse by opening their hands. And as one friend of mine says, and when they had lost all their marbles... (laughs) Um, But that's what they did, and then they published uh, the Gospels in the different colors that they came up with, and there's like a verse and a half that's still red. A verse and a half that's still red. Most of the verses were now in gray and black, okay? So how do they know 2,000 years after the fact? How do they know that? Well, they're just really smart, and you just have to trust them on that. Here's another one. I'm going to labor on this for a little bit. Oh, so that's why I had up here Jesus Seminar. Okay, anybody ever heard of a guy named, real name, Stanley Fish? Anybody ever heard of him? So 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, he was a literature professor at Johns Hopkins University. And in the... um, uh, early 70s, he began to develop something that eventually became known as this. He didn't have this name, um, he didn't have this name on his theory until people started reading his essays and, and these essays began to get traction. It became known as reader's response theory. Has anybody ever heard of reader response theory? No? Okay, here's the theory, and this is Stanley Fish, John Hop- Johns Hopkins literature professor, and this thing is wildly popular and accepted now. In in not only here you go, not only in analyzing texts, literature, but also in just how we receive communication. It's part of the reason why America has become a receiver-oriented communication culture. Here's what he here's his argument. He says that when we read a text, especially by an author who's dead, but really when we read just about any text, there is actually no possible way that we can know what the author intended to mean by that text. We can't get into his brain or her brain. We can't study the author enough. We can't read enough of their um, writings to know them enough. We can't read them, uh, study them historically. So, what he says is that an author of a text, let's say Shakespeare, has no authorial intent. There is no such thing as a authorial intent. We cannot know what that is. Therefore, the meaning of a text only comes about when somebody reads the text and responds to it in their own context. What do you think that does to the interpretation of a text? Have you, have you ever been in a Bible study when you're kind of talking about well, what do you think this means and somebody says, well, here's what it means to me. That's where that came from. And then we all just share ignorance. And nobody's worried, literally. Nobody's concerned or worried about what the original author intended by this. We're only concerned and really, we, we only have access. Fish says we only have access to what we think about the text. We're the ones that have the voice of the text that we're reading. That's what he argues. You follow that? Now, lest you think this is not important, okay, uh, every four years we elect a new president, and one of the things that the president does is he appoints uh, justices to the Supreme Court, right? Okay? What is the job of the Supreme Court? to interpret the Constitution in light of the case in front of it. You understand now that that presidents appoint um, uh, justices based on how they're going to interpret the Constitution, and you understand that we have four or five of them on there who really buy into Stanley Fish's um, uh, uh, theory, that we can really only interpret the Constitution in light of who we are and what we know today. How do we know what they really meant? But but on the other side of that, we have something that I was taught at Fuller Theological Seminary which might stun some of you because some of you think that's a very liberal seminary and they might embrace something like this. They did not. They reject this. But it's called uh, historical grammatical grammatical interpretation we believe there is a way of going back and studying the original author, the original text, the history, the socio-economic, all the backgrounds, and we can have a pretty good idea of what the author originally intended by what they wrote. So. This would be known as, if, if, you, if you have somebody appointed to the Supreme Court, this would be known as somebody like Clarence Thomas, who is a strict constructionist. He believes in historical grammatical interpretation of documents. Are you guys following all of this? Now, seriously, what does this do to the interpretation of the Bible if you embrace this? I mean, it just becomes an absolute mess. And nobody can agree on, on anything. And that so many contemporary scholars do this, and then here's one of the biggest arguments they cite for why they they do this. We're just so smarter now than when those books were written and studied by the ancients. And that is the impetus of C.S. Lewis constructing something known as, anybody? Chronological snobbery. He he says there's this, this, this phenomenon known as chronological snobbery. I'm alive today, obviously, I'm smarter than anybody who was alive 2,000 years ago, just by virtue of the fact that I'm alive today. My brother, who uh, has a history degree, uh, a history undergraduate, a history master's, and a law degree, uh, he says, as a historian, he says, that is absolutely true. He says, every generation thinks that just because we're alive today, we're smarter than anybody else who's ever lived. I guarantee you, the Apostle Paul's living today, he's got us all beat. He was a smart guy. He'd probably invent Microsoft. Or Apple, whatever it is. So, Solomon is behind this, and it was written early in his reign. Very early in his reign. Um, uh, this is actually before he had collected his 700 wives and 300 concubines. By the way, uh, uh, Tom never clarified what a concubine is. It's a woman with quills. So, just in case you were wondering. Um, in s- chapter 6, verse 8 of Song of Solomon, there's a reference to a harem of 140. That he has a harem of 140. He has not quite at 700 yet, but he's got 140. So, this is perhaps before he gets really greedy about women, okay? Ecclesiastes was written mid to late life, and Proverbs was assembled closer to the end of his life. So I'll give you some Solomon facts. Um, He was David's son, the second son of Bathsheba, reigned from 971 to 930. He was the third king of Israel. Uh, He was the last king before his sons uh, got into a squabble in 922 BC and split the kingdom into Israel to the north with the ten tribes and Judea Judea, uh, um, or Judah, however you want to pronounce it, to the south um, with the two tribes. He's known for his wisdom, and yet he clearly rebelled against God's plan for marriage. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, yeah. Um, And 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 here's the other thing about him: he really liked foreign women, so non-Jewish women. He really had a thing for for you know, the exotic uh, women. And, and I think this demonstrates that power and wealth can really corrupt our, our, our moral compass. So the players, again, here you go, for 2,800 years, Song of Solomon was interpreted as the love between King Solomon and his prized beloved, a Shulamite woman. Then in the 1800s, a new interpretation plot was cast by scholars. The woman, the Shulamite woman, was actually stolen by the king or taken as, as his proper property, but that she truly loved. Her true beloved was this shepherd guy, okay, and she longs for him. Therefore, in the in the book, there are four voices. There's the Shulamite woman, there's the king, there's the shepherd, and then there's the others. Now, the vast majority of scholars have rebuked this interpretation. So we're back pretty much to it's a Shulamite e- eager, woman's eager love for her beloved, the king. And, and it culminates in this wedding and a little bit of the aftermath. And there are three voices. So there's Solomon's voice, the Shulamite woman's voice, and then the others. And indeed, the most famous line in the Song of Solomon is 2.16. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. In fact, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. This is, in fact, the heart and soul of what every groom and bride say to each other at their wedding vows. At their wedding vows. And it's not just how we feel in that moment. It's supposed to last. And one of the things we'll talk about a lot in this series is what what are some of the things you can do to make those feelings last? Uh, the others, uh, the voice of the others, it's, it's like a chorus of voices, uh, plays almost like friends and family at a wedding reception. So if you, I, is at a wedding reception Friday night, there's the bride and the groom and they have a voice and then there's just the voice of everybody else who's there, generally encouraging the bride and the groom. So it's kind of like that. You'll see, you'll see as we get into it. And, and I know that sometimes people argue this, wait a minute, uh, Solomon was not a committed guy, so why should we study that? Well, that's true. Uh, apparently he wasn't really a committed guy the way we might define that. Um, I, I know this is a, a strong case of whataboutism, and, and it maybe won't hold water with you, but I, I will say this, if we examined your entire, if we put your entire life on display for everybody, everything, how would you feel about that? It might be kind of hard to justify whether or not you're a committed person as well, in all kinds of areas, okay? Um, I think it's possible that Solomon had a genuine desire for, tr- for true, true, pure intimacy, um, but he couldn't accomplish it under his own power, and we need to remember that God saves sinners, and God uses sinners, otherwise nobody on staff would be able to work at Redemption Church, and all of you would have to take over, so... Um, it is poetry, Song of Solomon has lots of metaphor, simile, analogy, allusions, and some of these words will make sense and others really won't, but one of the things we'll do is we'll try to study and understand why these words are used as comparisons and why they're good things. So one of the big words that's used is wine, and then any, just about any fruit is used as a very good comparison. So apples and pomegranates, you'll see at the end of the list, figs and raisins, uh, but other things too. These things are valuable to the ancient, ancient Eastern person. So spices, oil, goats, lambs, lilies, does, gazelles, myrrh, jewels, cedar, both the tree and, and the wood from the tree, young stag, uh, doves, henna, nard, gardens, vineyards, milk, gold, and silver. So here's the big idea for the Song of Solomon. God intends beautiful intimacy for his creatures. That's the big idea for the whole whole series, okay? And I know that's a lot, and it's just a flyby, Um, uh, but I love to get into that stuff. Let me give you some random observations, then we'll look at verses one through seven. Um, First of all, it is poetry, and so this book was meant to be read more than one time, reading it over and over and over, not necessarily in one sitting, but you should read it more than once. Um, it was likely composed uh, uh, originally and collected to be sung to an audience as, as an actual song. And it is today still sung on certain Jewish holy days in synagogue. They sing this song. There's other um, books of the Bible that they sing on certain ho- uh, holy days. But Song of Solomon is one of them. I think this is the best thing that can be said about the book, uh, uh, what Chuck Swindoll says. He says that uh, one of the best things we can receive from this book is to remember when love was fresh. Remembering when love was fresh. Now, let me mention something. I know there are a number of single people here, okay? Um, This is going to be helpful to you as well. If, in fact, at some point uh, you get involved romantically with somebody. Especially if that somebody doesn't attend this church and you get involved romantically with them. We are recording and so you can send them to the podcast to find out how they're supposed to treat you in your relationship. Which I think would be very valuable to you. Uh, Song of Solomon teaches that physical love grows with nurture, purpose, and intent. And it decays and dies when it is ignored. Physical love grows with nurture, purpose, and intent, and it decays and dies if you ignore it. Um, In other words, physical love can grow with age, and in our culture that just sounds stupid. But so do a lot of other things in the Bible. Culture finds stupid. Uh, Here's another one. We live in such a hectic time today that most often we read something like the Song of Solomon and we laugh rather than engage with joyous contemplation about it. Yet every one of us longs for the kind of love that you're going to find in this book. Every one of us longs for this. Whether we'll ever find it or receive it or have it is another question, but every one of us longs for it. So my call is the Song of Solomon is about both the beauty of a committed, intimate, romantic, erotic love relationship and secondarily uh, the gospel-centered relationship of of Christ and his church and us. There, There are illusions, I believe, But it's primarily about romantic love. So look at verses one through seven. That's what we're going to work on tonight as we wrap up. So, verse one the Song of Solomon's, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, written by Solomon. Um, And then In these first seven verses, you're going to find uh, that she's the primary, the Shulamite woman is the primary speaker, but there is a short interlude in the middle of verse four where the others, the, the, the cast of characters, the people at the reception, so to speak, chime in with something. So she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. That's kind of an interesting line. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And then the others say, We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then she says, I'm very dark, but lovely. So you've got to study this. What does that mean? I'm very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions. So, title in verse 1 says two things. This was written by Solomon. He composed the book. And there is no other love song as wonderful as his. And then she, he starts by writing about what she said. And and this is flowing between the third person and the second person, which is a common ancient uh Hebrew poetry technique to flow between second and third person. Um, it, how many of you are Seinfeld fans? Anybody? Do we still have any of them? okay D- Do you remember the Seinfeld episode where George began to speak of himself in the third person? Remember that? Okay, okay, all they were doing when when uh, uh, Seinfeld wrote that screenplay, all he was doing was mimicking Hebrew poetry. and why not? He's Jewish. He probably knows Hebrew poetry. so I'm kidding about that but you know George is getting upset okay so it we know what that means we we've seen that and she says kiss me with the kisses of his mouth as opposed to what the kisses of his feet or his elbows or what why why the kisses of his mouth again um first of all kisses are a clear expression of love obviously we can get that but um again this is he, she she's Uh, saying it this way, and he's recording it this way, um, because it's it's an ancient Hebrew device known as emphasis. Of course, the kisses are are with his mouth, but it's their way of saying, kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, kiss me. It's just more interesting than kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, kiss me. So that's what she's saying. I just want you to kiss me. And then love and wine are used analogously, you see, that, and that, that, that happens seven times in this, in this book. Love and wine, are compa- they're, they're the same thing, essentially, okay? Now, wine was deeply valued in their culture. And, and what's interesting about wine and love is that the person who is intoxicated by them have the same characteristics, right? And I think that's one reason why you can have that comparison, because both wine and love make you dizzy, faint, giddy, woozy and inarticulate. <laughs> and then in verse 3 oil is now front and center. What what might his anointing oils be? Are they are they the oils that he uses to give her a massage maybe? No. No. Uh, anointing oils in their time were special oils made of the finest flowers and herbs. And used for special occasion. And the word anointing in our context usually has religious overtones, but not in their context. It's it's really a a wonderful fragrance. And And it's used to celebrate relationships and love. And then she says, your name is oil poured out. Your name is a colloquialism for reputation. Your reputation is like oil, the finest oil. And her beloved has a wonderful reputation and is a man of status. So she compares his, his name, his reputation, to oil. And oil was a, was a, it was a currency in their day. It was, it was money in their day. And then she says, therefore, the virgins love you. <laughs> that just, guys, if you're married, has your wife ever said that? You know, the virgins love you. That would be an odd thing to say, right? Yeah, okay. Um, again, this is a colloquialism for what she's saying is any single woman would kill to be in my position. They would love to be in my position. They'd love to be the bride, your bride. And, and more locally contextualized, it's, it's an awareness that, understand, Solomon had a bunch of women working in his palace it's an awareness that all of those women are looking at her with some measure of, of envy and jealousy because she's got Solomon and they don't. So he's apparently got a little groupy thing going, okay. And then she says, "Draw me after you. Let us run." So I think we should uh, we should just admit the obvious here. There is something intoxicating. Endearing and exciting about romantic pursuit. Can I get an amen? Okay. Do you know what one of the top complaints is that I get when I do pastoral counseling for married couples? What one of the top, if not the top complaint, is from wives? My husband does not pursue me anymore. My husband does not. Pursue me, got quiet in here all of a sudden. My husband does not pursue me anymore. Uh, guys, if you're married, I cannot, and whatever stage you are in your marriage, I cannot tell you what a huge mistake it is to, to stop courting your wife, to stop pursuing her, to stop dating your wife, to stop trying to win your wife. And, and, I, and I get this, men are hunter-gatherers. I get that. Once we're married, what's the point? We've won. Okay, that's a mistake. That is a mistake. I said this once at a a marriage retreat in Iowa, and they appreciated it. Nobody here appreciates it, but guys are thinking, you know, I bagged the moose, so what's the point? Okay? (laughs) I'll get emails about that. Okay. Intrigue is fun, though, even after you've sealed the deal. It's fun. So live a little. And then she talks about her desire to be what with him? Alone. Alone. She wants to be alone with him. How can she enjoy him fully? And here you go. This is before the wedding, so it's not supposed to be sexually And she even makes reference to this later in the book. That she has kept herself from that for the wedding, okay? She still wants to be alone with him. How can she fully enjoy him if there's a bunch of other people present? Those of you that have been married for a little while, do you remember how anxious you got early in your romantic relationship with your spouse? When you just wanted everybody else to go away and let you be alone with, your, with this romantic interest, okay? If you're married and you've forgotten what it feels like to have a burning desire to be alone with your spouse, you really need some adjustments. That feeling is not supposed to go away. It's not supposed to go away. But it goes away because we don't tend to it. We don't work at it. There's no purpose anymore. And then she says, the king has brought me into his chambers. Now, um, this is where we get a little bit of that trouble with the idea of a fourth voice, the shepherd. This is, this is the claim that the king has kind of just taken her into his uh, chambers, but, but she doesn't want to be with the king. She really wants to be with this shepherd guy. Others say, here you go, others say, no, that's not it. It's, just, it's, merely, it's still not King Solomon, um, it's the shepherd. King Solomon's not even really involved here. It's simply her term of endearment for who her beloved is. He's not really a king, but she calls him. Like, again, you, you ladies, the way you're constantly calling your husbands. You, you, you're my king. You do that all the time, don't you? No? Okay. Jackie does all the time. I don't know okay and again remember it's it's not unusual in Hebrew poetry to switch effortlessly between second and third person okay so it's the king it is the king and there's this pursuit it's part of the pursuit is that he's brought her into the inner part of his home okay and then at the end of first four we have the first appearance of the others it's a chorus it's a community of encouragers as the romance is blooming which is somewhat common I, in some in some of our lives, we had that. Not always, but in some of our lives, we had that. We 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 got together with somebody, and those around us really encouraged that to go deeper and to happen, right? Some of you experience that. I know some of you others, maybe not. Maybe you had people questioning your discernment, and I get that. But here, it's that community kind of surrounding you going, yeah. This is going to work. This is going to be great. You guys are perfect together. Okay? And they are speaking of him here. The others are speaking of him. The you is in the Hebrew masculine, and they likely refers back to the virgins. So they're extolling Solomon here. The others are. And then again, verses 5 and 6 This is really interesting. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So this is a great example of why context is important. Um, Here today, uh, many of us, what we want is we want a nice tan, right? We like a nice tan. We sit out in the sun... We grease ourselves up, right? I I know I know people who have contests every summer to see who can in the family can get the best tan. It's a big deal. Having a you know, we have we have tanning booths. We have cream that you can put on your skin to tan you. If you don't, if your tan isn't good, it's goofy looking, I think. But nevertheless, you look darker and a little bit orange. Okay. But we obsess about being tan. It's, a, it's a, like a status symbol in our culture. But in their day, having a tan, having, having dark skin, was a sign that you were a poor laborer. You weren't supposed to have dark skin. It meant you work in the sun. It's a reverse status symbol. People would mock you for having dark skin in their culture. So you think of Joseph in Genesis. Uh, remember when he was taken to Potiphar's estate... He started where? He was an outside slave. He was an outdoor slave. That was the lowest rung. And then he got promoted to be an indoor slave. And then he became uh, the one who was in charge of all the indoor slaves. That's their their hierarchy and their status uh, in that that culture. And he had no tan. But he was really well built and handsome. Okay? Okay. So she feels the need to explain her dark skin, and and she's self-conscious of being compared to the other ladies in the palace who have lighter and non-sun exposed skin. She's really self-conscious about this. And, and, And apparently, if you read that, in her family, she made somebody mad. She made somebody mad, so she got put outside to tend the vineyard, to pick the grapes. So she needs, she feels the need to say this to the daughters of Jerusalem, presumably the upper-class single ladies who would like to be the king's wife instead of her, this dark, laboring, foreign woman. But she also says, in a sense, here's what she's saying, my darkness is actually an asset. She says, I'm like the tents of Kedar and, and the curtains of Solomon. My darkness is like the tents of Kedar and the curtains of Solomon. The tents of Kedar were massive black goat hair tents and I know some of you are like how many of you have anything that's black goat hair okay back then it was a big big deal very expensive very nice very luxurious so these tents were black goat hair tents that would house many people very majestic and impressive and then the curtains of Solomon obviously Solomon's the king he'd have the best most expensive most luxurious curtains so she's saying that's what I'm like okay And and what this little passage is also telling us is that her dark skin on the outside is a sign of good character on the inside. She's not afraid of work. And remember, even with her dark skin, her lover, the king, finds her the most beautiful woman that he's ever seen. He's going to, when he starts talking, all he does is extol her beauty. He just can't get over how beautiful she is. And then she says, but my own vineyard I have not kept. I was so busy working in the vineyard that I didn't keep my own vineyard. What's she saying? I didn't have time to take care of myself. I I never had time to go shopping. No Lancome Clinique Estee Lauder. No moisturizing pellets from Europe. No Lululemon. None of that stuff. Didn't have time for it. And yet, and yet, she is magnificent. She's magnificent. And then verse 7. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So verse 7 is very simply, when and where can we have a rendezvous? I want to get together with you. Some of you, I'd like, you remember the rock group Foreigner? Remember the song Hot Blooded? Can we make a secret rendezvous? There was a line in there about it just makes every time I read Song of Solomon, I think a foreigner hot blooded. That's all it is. For more than one reason, obviously. Um, noon is the normal time for the afternoon break from work for somebody who's tending to a flock, too. So the time is set. The question is just where? And I you think, really? The king works, yeah, even the king works. As as part of what he drew on for Ecclesiastes, the wisdom that you find in Ecclesiastes. It's part of what he draws on in order to write the Proverbs too, is the fact that he works. Solomon was a shepherd as well as the king. Okay? So she's simply trying to arrange a date. She's got a little Sadie Hawkins thing going here. And and the veiled woman thing is interesting because uh, the veiled woman in this particular context can reference a loose woman like a prostitute, Uh, a veiled woman who might hang around where the shepherds are hoping to do some business. So what she's saying to Solomon is, look, you need to tell me exactly when and where we're going to meet because I'm not going to be hanging around these other shepherds looking like I'm trying to, you know, get some business going on. I don't want anybody mistaking me for a loose woman. So you need to tell me exactly when and where and where I need to be. Okay, You you need to do this out of respect uh, for me. So those are the first seven verses, kind of an introduction. Let me give you this as a a potential takeaway tonight as we go. Um, We have here already, we have king and shepherd. And you think about in the Bible how often we hear about king and shepherd, right? King and shepherd, king and shepherd, king and shepherd. Um, I love soul and Motown and funk and all that. Uh, Last time I was in um, Wisconsin for my study break, I, I fly into Milwaukee, get a car, and drive to Omro, which is about an hour and a half away. And for the first time ever, I got a car that was equipped with radio. Sir, Sirius radio. Sirius, Cirrus? Whatever it is. Anyway, I'd never had it before, and I didn't ask for it. They just, they just said, it's the only car we have. You can have the, the, radio, the, 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 the satellite radio for free. So I'm on there, and I've heard all about this satellite radio. I, I don't have it. I hear all about, it, though. You can get any you know, station you want contoured to your... So I'm looking, obviously, those of you who know me, I'm looking for a heart station. So the group heart go through all 7,000 channels. No heart station, okay? But there was um, a a station called Soul Town. So it's a combination of soul and Motown from the 60s. I said, oh yeah. And, And almost every single song on there I knew, I grew up with. And it was just absolutely fantastic. There's a There's an old Motown soul singer named Mary Wells from the 60s. Anybody remember Mary Wells? Okay, that's cool, yeah. She had a big hit called I've Got Two Lovers. Anybody remember that song? So the first verse, she sings about lover number one, right? And then she goes into the chorus, I've got two lovers, blah, 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 blah. And I love them both, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm thinking, well, she's not a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes to verse 2 and she describes lover number 2. And, I, and he's completely different. Completely different characteristics. And then she goes into the chorus. I've got two lovers, nothing wrong with that, blah, blah, blah. And then what is verse 3? They're the same people. They're the same people. Playing different roles in her life. Okay? Okay. This is true of God. He's a king, but he's also a shepherd. He's he's not just one, he's both. I want you to think of Psalm 23. There's an interesting juxtaposition going on there with, with Psalm 23. The king is writing about his shepherd, right? But isn't the king also saying, I have a king, right? And he's also saying, I need to be a shepherd. See, God is both shepherd and king. And in their culture, the king was also looked upon as the shepherd. And that's the way we should look at God. So David's saying, God is my king. Not only is he my shepherd, but he's my my king. here's, Here's what David says about God being his shepherd in Psalm 23. He makes me lie down. He leads me to the water. He tends to me and he protects me. That's God his shepherd. But David is also saying, although I am the king, I also have a king, the Lord God. He sets my table before my enemies. He's going to protect me, he's going to take care of me as a king should also. He's going to do all of those things. It's really, if you think about Psalm 23, it's a humbling admission on the part of a worldly king saying, I'm still not all that. Now, did David have times when he got really full of himself? Of course he did. Of course he did. But Psalm 23 is, a, is really a very humbling uh, psalm in that regard. Well, Solomon is also a king and a shepherd. He's a real shepherd. He has, he has flocks. But he's also a shepherd of the people, and he's the king of the people as well. But more importantly, Jesus is also a king and a shepherd, right? Okay, you're supposed to say yes here. He's a king and shepherd. And sometimes we need a king, right? We need his power, his strength, and his governance, right? And and sometimes we need a shepherd. We need his nurture. His patience, his understanding, his empathy, and his compassion. You see that? And he can give us all of that. And what's interesting is he showed both of those characteristics through the crucifixion and the resurrection. He showed that he's our shepherd. He was willing to do anything for us, protect us, anything to give us life, including die for us. That's what the good shepherd does. He was willing to die for us. But he also showed us he's our king. He's the only one that has the power to defeat death. He is the king and he is the shepherd. The Song of Solomon is about romantic love, but it's also about a king and a shepherd taking care of at least one of his wives in in a way that really all of us would want to be taken care of with power and nurture. And we really need both. So next week what we're going to do is is uh, we'll look at 1-8 through 3-5, and we'll really get into the poetry of this baby and uh, have a a lot of application towards the end as well. Let me pray, and uh, we'll be on our way. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and uh, we do thank you that you're both our king and our shepherd, and And God, I just pray that we would understand that, that we we want a Savior, we don't necessarily want a Lord, but we need you as Lord as well. We need a king, we need a shepherd, we need a Savior, and we need somebody to submit our will to as well. So help us to do that. Um, We're not as bright as we think we are. We're like sheep. Uh, We need direction. We need wisdom. And so we pray the study of this book will help us to have that. pray you uh, would bless us as we go and that you would get all the glory. And God, again, just my prayer is that you would help us to see Jesus. Help us to see Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.